We continue our Mark series today, heading to Mark's Gospel and chapter 10. So grab your Bibles, open them at Mark's Gospel and chapter 10 as we go to God's Word today. Uh, today we're going to be looking at four topics from our passage. Uh, we're going to touch on two, but we're going to go into a bit more detail on another two. The topics today are marriage, divorce, sexuality and gender. Four topics that carry much hurt and pain. Four topics that our society have widely discussed and debated. Four topics that have potential to cause real division and angst in our lives. In just England and Wales over the last five years, there's been over 100,000 divorces each year. 20% of those divorces are the second or third divorce. And in 50,000 divorces each year, they involve families with children. This is to say that this topic causes much hurt and much pain. And many people coming to this sermon today will carry much baggage over these topics. And so as we come to handle marriage, divorce, sexuality and gender, we handle these topics in two distinct ways. Firstly, we must be guided by the Word of God as final authority over these matters. It's not about opinion, it's about the Word of God which is truth that cannot lie and will show us the way of God. Secondly, we approach these topics in grace and peace. We don't want to be controversial for the sake of it. Rather, we want to lovingly seek God's word as the standard to which we are called. And so considering these topics, I want to begin by praying together. So let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come to your word that we recognise it as final authority and that I would teach it and people would hear it in grace and peace. Father, we pray that we won't be controversial for the sake of it, but rather we would see your word as life a life that is abundantly given to those who would be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray as we stand on your word that you would encourage us, challenge us and show us the way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we head to Mark chapter 10 and we're going to start in at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds began to gather. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. In chapters 1 through 9, we have the Galilean ministry of Jesus centred around the Sea of Galilee. And who can forget what happened there? The storms that Jesus calmed, the crowds that Jesus taught, the crowds that Jesus healed. And all this happened around the Sea of Galilee. As we move into chapter 10 and really all the way through towards the end of Mark's Gospel, we have the Judean ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus heads south from Mount Hermon, where he's been for a few days, toward Judea. You'll notice on the map the River Jordan running south toward Judea. However, Jesus is going to go beyond the Jordan, hinting that he's heading toward Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus has begun his journey to the place where he will die for the sins of the world. Once again, as has now become common in his ministry, Jesus pulls a crowd. And notice what he does with the crowd. He teaches the crowd. And this was one of the central ministries of Jesus, to teach the people about God and his ways. And Jesus would often teach the crowd. He would teach them on multiple occasions with a wide variety of topics. However, every single teaching moment did the same thing. Point back to God and salvation provided through the Messiah by faith in the Messiah. So Jesus consistently said the same message. Salvation in the name of Jesus that is provided by God and this is the way of God. This is what Jesus was teaching to the crowds. Verse 2. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
It was on one of these occasions when Jesus was teaching the crowd that the Pharisees approached Jesus to ask a question. Now the Pharisees were religious leaders who were legalistic rule keepers of the unwritten Torah. That were the laws that were added to the law of Moses to ensure a compliance and, and a set apart people. And they had a question. Their question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And I find myself asking, why are they even asking this question? Because this is the Pharisees. They know the law inside out. They debated it, they applied it, they enforced the law so they would know what Moses had taught. In fact, we read in verse four, they already knew what Moses said and we'll come on that in just a few moments. Their question isn't about defining what is right and wrong. Their question is a trick, a temptation to get Jesus to say something incriminating. You see, the Pharisees hated Jesus. To them, he was a man claiming to be far more than he was. He was a man who ignored their rules, even suggesting that the Pharisees were hypocrites. They wanted Jesus, at the very least, arrested. But their wicked hearts wanted more than that. They wanted Jesus arrested, tried and crucified. They wanted rid of him. So although the passage, yes, was a teaching moment for Jesus, where he teaches on these four topics, ultimately, it was a response from Jesus to a trick question. Verse three, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. The Pharisees asked if something was lawful. So Jesus does the sensible thing and takes them back to the law. And we'll come on that in a little moment. But for now, let's read Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is not about to twist or change the law, for his role is not to belittle the law, rather to fulfill it as the Messiah, as the one whom the law and prophets prophesied, saying that through this Messiah there'll be faith, and through faith there'll be everlasting life in heaven that God will provide. So notice that Jesus is responding, not as one who's gonna question the law, debate the law, belittle the law, but as one who's going to elevate the law and show its meaning. But notice how the Pharisees respond to this, that Moses allowed. And I just want you to stop on that word for a moment. The Pharisees asked if something was lawful, as in, is it a command? They knew the law inside out, so they already knew what the law stated. And in response to Jesus, they said that Moses allowed. Notice, not Moses commanded, not Moses saying the law must be, he said Moses allowed. It is as if the Pharisees are disarmed or weaker in their approach to Jesus. Because in one single question, Jesus has shown he already knows it's a trick question because they're asking about the law and Jesus already knows the law. So the question really is, what was it that Moses allowed? Well, he allowed a man to write a divorce certificate and separate from his wife. To grasp this in more detail, we need to head to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and actually read the law as was given. Deuteronomy 24 and from verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in the hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. 
What we see in Deuteronomy 24 is what the Pharisees indicated, that Moses allowed or permitted divorce, specifically due to indecency being found in the spouse. I stress that this was not a command to divorce, but an allowance to divorce. The issue debated wasn't whether divorce was possible, but under what grounds should someone divorce? And really there's two schools of thought over this Old Testament passage. The first was the matter of adultery, that indecency refers to sexual immorality, that the marriage has been defiled by an adulterous act. And I want to be clear, we're not necessarily meaning here that one party has had sexual intercourse with somebody outside of the marital home, rather includes many acts of adultery. And we'll come again more on that in a little bit later. But the second thought was based on indecency to perform the acts of a spouse. In other words, your husband or wife doesn't like something about you. It might be the way you cook, the way you speak, really any form of dislike upon you. And under this view, you could divorce for any reason and simply call it indecency. In Matthew's Gospel account, we get a bit of a hint towards this, Matthew 17, 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Sadly, this second view, this any cause divorce, was more prevalent and divorces for minor reasons were all too common in Old Testament and New Testament times. Now look at the response of Jesus to this knowledge in verse five. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. You see, the law gave permission to divorce, not as a way of life, but because people were hard-hearted. They wanted out of their marriages, either for sexual immoral reasons or boredom with their spouse. And the hardness of heart towards marriage would have potentially have catastrophic outcomes. It was Matthew Henry who questions as to whether it would be simply easier in Old Testament times to kill your spouse and then move on being released from the bond of marriage. He suggests that God potentially places this permission in the law for in some respect is a lesser uh, evil than that of murder. Interestingly though, Matthew Henry would also state that God had not instituted divorce before this time for his desire was never for an everlasting rule of divorce, but for a temporary permission that was the lesser of two evils. At the very least, what we can get from this passage so far is that it would be better to divorce in the eyes of the law than to live a life with flagrant disregard to marriage, with continual sexual immorality and adultery. And let me be clear, both are clearly not what God intends. But in some regard, we are being shown that divorce is the lesser of two evils than that of continual adultery. But it's at this moment, at this key moment of understanding the law, that Jesus completely turns the discussion, this teaching moment on its head and shows us what's truly at stake. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. As Jesus taught, he often goes to that deeper theological level. Jesus doesn't go to the popular opinion of the times, nor does he go to the law given to Moses. He goes all the way back to creation. Jesus goes to pre-fall times, that is when creation was perfect with no sin and no flaw. He goes to the time where God's perfection was on display through his creation. And he quotes from Genesis 1.27 and the whole verse states, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. I want to make sure you see this. 
when God created everything, he created it perfect. He created it in a time when sin did not entangle and did not tarnish anything. So in pre-fall times, before sin, God's perfect creation was man and woman, two distinct genders. Now in post-fall times, meaning now that sin has entered the world and tarnishes this world, our society actually now recognises 64 different types of gender and gender descriptions. Again, in post-fall times, after sin has entered the world, our society also recognises the right to change gender, to be a gender of your choosing. God's design, his perfect creation pre-fall before sin, was male and female. It was only after sin tarnished creation do we see the fall away from this position. But the word of God is clear. There is no more than two genders. And we must hold to the Bible as the final authority on all these matters because it's the living word of God. The world, however, rejects two distinct genders in the world of tolerance and inclusiveness. But for the believer, the believer in Christ, it is not loving to let the world continue to believe in tolerance and inclusiveness that multi-gender society is in fact not a sin. It goes against the perfect and holy standard of God it goes against the perfect creation of God. It goes against the word of God. However, why does Jesus say this now? Why does he have a distinct look at genders? What does all this have to do with marriage? Well, marriage is not, be uh, marriage is not merely based on the words of God. It is rooted in the very act of creation. God uses two sexes, man and woman. Matthew Henry would remind us that God made one of each, one man and one woman. He created them to be together, to be in the union of marriage before God. There was no option of divorce, for there was no other options, there was no other people. Sin hadn't come in, there was no adultery, there was no person to distract a wandering eye, there was no boredom or doubt in one's partner. God's creation was the perfect marriage between one man and one woman. I also want you to note the quote from Genesis clearly states that God made them, meaning that God owns his creation. He oversees his creation and therefore it's God and God alone who gets to decide what constitutes a marriage. But God did more than create a perfect union. He gave distinct commands to protect that union. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And the man would voluntarily leave the strongest and most caring social group he knew. He would leave his family. He would do so to create a brand new bond, an even closer and stronger bond than that of his family. And marriage is that closest human bond. And these verses quoted from Genesis talk about two people becoming one person. Uh, David Guzik would phrase it this way, be glued to her. A husband ought to be as firm to his wife as himself. I also saw it described as being yoked together, meaning to work hard together for the sake of the union. Uh, the picture God paints and that Jesus quotes here is of a bond so strong, so intimate, so beautiful, that each party ensures its protection. 
So deep is the bond between bride and bridegroom. The Apostle uses marriage, the Apostle Paul uses marriage to describe the relationship between God and his church and Christ and Je- uh, the Christian and Jesus as the bond of marriage, the bride and the bridegroom. That is how strong and intimate this bond is. The bond of marriage is divine. The very aim of creation is to bring man and woman together to glorify God in a perfect union. God designs his creation, that of man and woman, to enjoy a permanent, lifelong unity together. But it's not just about pleasure, it's about responsibility, to desire the other to flourish and to live as a a, a way of bringing together one beautiful union to work to protect that special bond between husband and wife. And so God's design of marriage isn't just lifelong permanent unity, it's lifelong faithfulness toward one another. And I want to be very clear at this point, this faithfulness, this deep and divine bond is between man and woman. There is no deviation and no tolerance for any other form of sexuality. What I mean by this is that God's perfect creation of man and woman His creation of marriage as a union was between man and woman, not between man and man and not between women and women. Any form of homosexuality or bisexual tendencies come post-fall, meaning it came into existence after sin entered the world. Now, although the world and sadly many Christians will have you believe that God's word is not clear on this, it is in fact very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and from verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuality is a sin. It is contrary to God's perfect creation and it should not be seen as an option for marriage. But let's go back to the Pharisees. In asking a question about divorce, it wasn't the fact that the Pharisees didn't understand divorce, rather they didn't understand the sanctity of marriage. They were starting from the wrong place. Jesus showed them that divorce is the wrong discussion, it's the wrong motive, because we must understand marriage as the focus. Now talking about the Pharisees, How did they respond to this creation narrative? How did they respond to this beautiful union that Jesus describes? Well, we don't know. It seems that they didn't have a response. The Pharisees leave. Their trick hadn't worked. In fact, it backfired. For not only did Jesus see through their questioning, he then pointed out their flaw in looking at the wrong thing and then taught the crowd and those around them about the beauty of glories, uh, God's glorious creation in man and woman, the wonderful divine bond of marriage. It completely backfired on them and so they leave. We don't hear anything from them. However, the Bible doesn't fall silent on the subject of marriage. Remember, God didn't just create and establish marriage. He puts things in place to protect marriage. And we have this wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and from verse 22. And I want you to listen to these words and hear not just a perfect couple in man and woman, but how the bond of marriage is to be protected. Ephesians 5 and from verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what is God's standard of marriage? Well, let's begin with the husband. He is to love his wife. And I'm not saying some airy-fairy love, but with a deep love that Christ showed his church in giving his life for mankind. Now, remember David Guzik? To be firmly to your wife as much as it is to yourself. Husbands are to love with such a deep affection. Within that union, there is perfect love, one that spurs one another on, one that builds up one another, one that ensures both parties flourish. As much as the husband wants to survive, he must help his wife and encourage his wife to survive. He is to deeply love his wife. So talking about wives, what is their responsibility? Wives are to submit and to respect their husbands. Now I'm gonna come onto this in just a few moments, but I want to go back to husbands on this regard. Do you live a life? Do you have a faith? Do you honour your marital responsibilities in a way that your wife can respect and submit to you? As spiritual head of the households, husbands are tasked to be godly in your relationship. You're commanded to love, commanded to honour, commanded to be in such close bond with your wife that you don't have a wandering eye or abusive tendencies or an apathy toward your marriage. How can a wife submit and respect a husband who doesn't honour the word of God? When Paul was writing to Timothy, he said in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. You see, God has a lot to say about the role, responsibility and the actions of men. Clear as anything, husbands are to be holy in their way of living meaning you're to be set apart from the world, set apart for Jesus. You're praying, lifting your hands to Jesus, not to the things of this world. You have a 100% command to not be angry, to not be quarrelsome, to not be abusive in any form of way. It is when husbands truly take their role seriously that the marital home can be in harmony. Now back to wives, submitting and respecting does not mean being a doormat and being walked over. Look at how Paul describes it. As the church submits to Christ, as the church looks to Christ for leadership in love, so the wife looks to her husband for leadership in love. Respect and submission isn't about who gets to make the decision and who's in control and who has the final say. It's about humility, desiring to be led, desiring to be loved, desiring to be honoured by a godly man. And I want that to be very clear, by a godly man. The desire of the wife is to be led, spiritually led, loved, cared for, and shown what it means to be faithful to Christ. Now, when we head to 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible continues with further details on how to protect the union and bond of marriage. 1 Corinthians 7. 
the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In marriage, we are not to withhold sexual intimacy from one another. The bond of husband loving his wife and the wife respecting and loving her husband produces the beauty of a sexual relationship. When entirely given to one another, you do not withhold your body for it no longer belongs to you. It belongs in that one perfect union because you are now one flesh in relationship in marriage. The bond is deep. The bond is divine. The bond seeks the best for each other. However, there are going to be times where sexual intimacy for a period of time should be deprived, should upon mutual agreement be taken off the table and not be allowed so that you can increase in your intimacy with God. For there is no greater relationship than that of the relationship with God. However, do not take off the table for too long because it is then that Satan can tempt us with wandering eyes and thoughts that are unbiblical. Do you see the picture that, that is building here? Jesus in using creation shows that God has marriage between man and woman established and sustained. A godly marriage is one of sacrificing yourself to be joined with your spouse. It is one that is before God, one that honours his commands, one that puts God at the centre. However, there is another reality, isn't there? A marriage that doesn't honour God, one where a husband doesn't take his role seriously, one where sin takes over, one where God's creation no longer looks to the desire of God, but to the desires of themselves. And that is why we must return to Mark chapter 10 and verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Pharisees are gone now. It's now just Jesus and his disciples, and they press Jesus further on the matter. And it's very clear from what Jesus says here that divorce indeed does happen. He now goes beyond the act of divorce and looks to what comes after. The premise of what Jesus is saying here is that to divorce and move on to the next spouse and the next spouse and the next spouse and so on would ultimately be adultery. For you have broken the bond that God has divinely put together and you've broken it by going to somebody else. Now, when we refer to Matthew's gospel, we get a little bit more detail here. Matthew 19, verse seven. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And again, I want to add to this verse, Matthew five from verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew's more detailed approach, and we know why it's more detailed, Mark likes to just get straight to the point and kind of often skims over things, but Matthew gives a detailed response. Sexual immorality is a complete severing of the bond that God has divinely put together. And therefore, to commit adultery is to sever this bond, meaning it's a permissible reason to divorce. More than that, divorcing under sexual immorality grounds means the innocent party is free to marry once more. 
Outwith of sexual immorality, Romans 7 give us a further insight. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Marriage is till death do us part. Matthew 19 gives the exception to that, being sexual immorality. Now, before wrapping this up into direct application to our own lives, let me be clear on one aspect. If you are in a marriage that is abusive, where you are at risk, specifically you have risk to your life and mental well-being, please reach out and find help. God's standard of marriage is for neither party to be abused, to be put in harm's way or to fear for their well-being or their own life. Please reach out for someone and please reach out for help. Don't be ashamed by it. Please tell us what is going on so that we can pray for you and help you and help you get out of this abusive uh, relationship. Now, I want you to just distill all of what we've been teaching today into two very simple sentences. And really, I think this is the crux of what this passage is teaching. Sentence one, a proper understanding and protection of biblical marriage avoids the need to exercise temporary permission to divorce. A proper understanding and protection of biblical marriage avoids the needs to exercise temporary permission to divorce. Secondly, God's standard of gender, sexuality and marriage is for one man and one woman to be joined in the most intimate and divine bond of marriage. No other options are biblical. God's standard of gender, sexuality and marriage is for one man and one woman to be joined in the most intimate and divine bond of marriage. No other options are biblical. Having walked us through the passage today, how should we practically apply this to our lives? Again, it's great to have the knowledge of God's word. It's great to see the truth of it. It's great to stand on it. Now it's about applying it to our lives so that it would change our lives and make us more like Christ each day. Here's just a few things, very quick things I would like to encourage you. And number one, protect your marriage. The premise of today's passage is not in fact about divorce. It is about marriage. It is a blessing. It is a divine bond. It is a beautiful gift from God. And we must protect our marriage. And here are just four things I would like you to do without delay. Do them today. Spend time with your spouse in the word of God. Pray together that God would protect your union. Rid your lives of anything that would seek to harm your marriage and seek Jesus. For as you are more filled with his love, the more you can then love your spouse. Don't listen to this world. Marriages don't have to fail. They don't have to be a battleground. They don't have to produce pain and arguments. Marriage is a blessing from God and therefore we must spend our time and our energy protecting that most divine and beautiful bond of marriage. Secondly, repent, forgive and strain forwards. You can't change yesterday. That's your past. But you can deal with today and you can impact tomorrow. Repent from your sin right now. The sin of putting your spouse second. The sin of sexual immorality. The sin of selfishness. The sin of pride. Repent and turn away from it today. Seek forgiveness. Seek to be restored by Jesus. 
Seek to be called and loved by him, and in so doing, rid yourself of what pulls you back and set in motion a sure footing for you and your spouse to launch forward into tomorrow. You can't change yesterday. You can make an impact for tomorrow by today, repenting, forgiving, and straining forwards with your spouse. Thirdly, get your armour on. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? But the armour of God was given to us to protect us from the devil and from all that he would try to do to get us to slip up, just like the Pharisees did with Jesus. When you stand for truth, when you stand for God's word as final authority, when you stand for biblical marriage, when you stand for biblical gender of man and woman, when you stand for biblical sexuality, when you stand for truth, you better believe the devil is going to come knocking. He will use your friends, he will use your family, he will use the most precious things to you and he will try and beat you down for your standing for God. But we have news for the devil because we have the armour of God on, don't we? We are protected. We have the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shoes of readiness. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the mighty sword of God's word. And here's the news flash. We already know we're victorious because Jesus has already defeated death and sin. So we must stand firm. We must live a biblical marriage. And we just need to watch as Jesus battles, fights, and wins the war against the devil. Don't let him beat you down because Jesus is already victorious. So armour up because he's coming, but we're going to win that war because Jesus has already won it. The fourth and final thing I want to encourage you is be gospel minded. It's all about Jesus ultimately. Jesus was sent to this earth because we messed up, because creation messed itself up. God's perfect and, perfect and holy standard was muddied and mocked by our sin. Yet God, rich in mercy, sent Jesus to save us from this ugly thing that is sin that would ruin our marriages and spoil our children and wreck homes. In providing salvation, not only does Jesus show us our way back to the standard of God, but he promises a reward, an everlasting life that is perfect creation in God's eternal dwelling place. Friends, let your marriage reflect Jesus. Let your lives reflect the greatest bond of all, that Jesus loved you to the point of death on the cross, that if you would humble yourself before him and place your faith in him, he would set you free from sin and he would grant you the title of child of God. I pray that not only would God work in your relationship on this earth so that you would enjoy the blessing of divine given bonds, but that he would work on your relationship with the creator God, that you would truly be a citizen of heaven one that recognises the divine bond of marriage, one that protects it, and one that honours biblical marriage. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We know there's some tough stuff in there, Father, but we cl clearly call it the authority of God, for it is the truth, it cannot lie, and it has final say on all matters. So, Father, we praise you that you have given us this divine bond of marriage. Help us protect it, Father. Help us honour it. Help us live as uh, ones that are called children of God, loving our spouses, respecting our spouses. And through our marriage, Father, we pray that as people look upon our marriages, they will see the love of Jesus flowing through it and that they would be compelled to hear that gospel message and come to Jesus to find a personal Lord and Saviour. So, Father, Help us suit up with our armour. Help us stand on the word of God. Help us stand for biblical marriage. And Father, as we do so, we pray that your kingdom will be glorified. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.